Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm Stephanie Bastek, but this week I am not your host. I'm turning over the microphones to two of my colleagues, Katie Daniels and Taylor Curry, who host our monthly online book club, Spoiler Alert. If you're not already a member of the book club, you can find it on Facebook. There's a link in the show notes. But no prior experience is required to enjoy this episode or this interview with Ruth Franklin, which comes a little bit early in honor of Halloween. Take it away, Katie and Taylor. I'm Katie Daniels, assistant editor of The American Scholar. And I'm Taylor Curry, the editorial assistant. We lead a monthly online book club called Spoiler Alert, where we discuss our book of the month over Facebook Live. For our October book, we couldn't think of a better book to get us into the Halloween mood than a spooky classic. Shirley Jackson's novel, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, a suspenseful tale of the two Blackwood sisters, Maricat and Constance, and the mysterious murder that took place at their house. If you've made it through high school English class, chances are you've read Jackson's famous, or infamous, short story, The Lottery. But for a long time, her hard-to-categorize novels and her humorous parenting memoirs often took the backseat to this single short story. That's starting to change. In the past two years, The Haunting of Hill House has been made into a TV show, and We Have Always Lived in the Castle has been made into a movie, and Jackson's books are once again becoming a part of the mainstream conversation. Today, for this special episode of Smarty Pants, we'll be talking with Ruth Franklin. She's a book critic who has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times Book Review, and The Atlantic. She's also written one of the best-received biographies in the past few years, Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award. And it argues that Jackson's writing is an important contribution to the tradition of American Gothic writing, placing her alongside writers like Edgar Allan Poe or Nathaniel Hawthorne. Not only did she contribute some of the best ghost stories, but she also brought a unique perspective to the genre. Her later books, novels like The Haunting of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle, center on the isolation and psychic damage of their female protagonists. And in both books, a house, traditionally the woman's domain, plays a crucial, often terrifying role in the story. It's something that Jackson wrestled with in her personal life, balancing her creative life as a writer and her family life as a wife and mother of four children. She was a part of a generation of American women raising families in the 1940s and 50s, right on the brink of the feminist movement, but still at a time when it was unusual for a woman to have a career outside the home. It's a tension that animates both her horror fiction and her domestic memoirs, and one that we're excited to talk about with Ruth today. Ruth, thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
So Shirley Jackson, A Rather Haunted Life is your first biography. What drew you to writing about Jackson as a subject in particular? Shirley Jackson was one of those writers I always kind of had in my head as somebody who was important to me. I read the lottery, I guess, you know, in middle school or high school when everybody else does. Um, But it was The Haunting of Hill House that was the novel that was really important to me. Um, You know, it's a ghost story like um, The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, a ghost story that's just so much more than a ghost story that really gets at the heart of why we fear the things that we fear and, you know, what that fear means to us. So I just was, had always kind of been intrigued by that novel. And then I happened to read some of Jackson's memoirs about her domestic life not long after I became a mother myself and was really struck um, by the tension between the two roles for her, the role of the 1950s housewife and the major writer. And I just really kind of wanted to go behind the scenes of her life and find out more about how she made that happen. Since all of her archives are at the Library of Congress here in Washington, D.C., when you were researching, did you discover anything unusual? Yeah, I mean, that was an amazing process. I'm based in New York, so I did a lot of traveling back and forth to Washington, usually for about a week at a time. I would just immerse myself basically all day long in the archive. And yeah, I found all kinds of things. The archive was sort of transported there almost directly from Jackson's desk after she died. She, she died suddenly um, in 1965 while she was uh, taking a nap, actually. And so it wasn't as if she had had time to organize her files and get things ready. And her husband, the literary critic Stanley Edgar Hyman, um, kind of donated it all just as it was. And, you know, various archivists tried to um, make order out of it over the years, but um, the the fact that it had, you know, needed so much work to be done on it meant that lots of things were, you know, in folders marked miscellaneous. And it was often in those miscellaneous folders that I found the most interesting things. For instance, there is a whole folder of letters that I discovered maybe three or four years into the project Um, from a woman whose name I had never heard, Jean Beatty. And apparently, you know, because of this huge sheaf of lengthy letters, I could see that she had been a good friend of Shirley Jackson's. But nobody seemed to know who she was. And I did a little bit of investigating. I found out she was a housewife in Baltimore who started off a pen pal relationship with Jackson by writing her a fan letter. And by contacting her daughter, I managed to find the letters that Jackson had sent her, which were in the, her family barn in Pennsylvania. So, you know, it was stuff like that that really make biography um, an exciting seat-of-your-pants kind of endeavor. I imagine. You spent six years writing the book. Did you feel protective of Shirley Jackson at all by the time you had finished it? How did your perception of her as a writer, as a person, uh, change through this process? That's an interesting question. Um, My overall perception of her didn't change a lot. I mean, I went into it with a lot of admiration and, uh, you know, fondness for her as a writer. And I guess what developed more than anything else was um, the level of affection that I came to feel for her. You know, when you read that much of somebody's private papers, you know, their letters and their diaries, and with Jackson in her archive, there even was stuff like her diet logs where she wrote down her meals when she was dieting and her weight gain and loss. You know, when you read all that stuff, you really, you do feel that you come to know a person. 
So with biography, I think it can go two different ways. Some biographers clearly kind of sour on their subjects and I guess get tired of them. And I feel like I was lucky in that with Jackson, I had you know almost unwittingly chosen a subject who was really congenial to me. I, I found her I found her company always stimulating, you know, if not always a pleasure, at least, you know, I found her, her always fascinating. And I was completely absorbed in the project from the beginning to the end. I, I never got got tired of spending time in her head, as it were. Well, and I'd imagine that one of the things that makes her so interesting is that she was prone to myth-making and was occasionally an unreliable narrator of her own life, like with the three diaries that she kept under the three different personas. So Mm. how did you grapple with that when you were writing her biography? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Jackson, as a teenager, actually kept uh, two and at times three different diaries kind of a normal diary in which she recorded thoughts or stuff about her friends or boyfriends. And then another one that was an epistolary diary that she kept in the form of love letters to a boy she had a crush on. And they were clearly all kind of playing with different forms of a fantasy persona. And that kind of split narration definitely continued later in life in different forms. Um, She wrote long letters to her parents, for instance, throughout her entire adult life, and most of them survive. But the stuff that she was narrating about her life to her parents, you know, wasn't always, um, you know, it was the stuff that she wanted her parents to know about, um, and not, for instance, the darker stuff about her, you know, her struggles with her mental health, her agoraphobia, her, you know, kind of darker thoughts about about her own writing. And so I just was very careful not to take stuff at face value. Um, I mean, when we're talking about the memoirs she wrote about her family, I tried, you know, as much as possible to check the stories that she told there with um, her children. Um, She had four children who all participated in the project in different ways. But there were many drafts of things. There was one instant where um, her son, I think around eight or nine years old, had a very bad car accident. He was riding his bike and was hit by a car and seriously injured. And that episode appears in her memoir, Life Among the Savages, but only in the most comic possible way, uh, where she describes him waking up in the hospital and he's full of, uh, he doesn't remember anything and all he wants to know are all the gory details of what happened. He keeps asking her, was there a lot of blood? And in the drafts of it, you know, first of all, there are letters to her parents about it, which are much more serious. And then there are different drafts of the way she tried to play with the story to take out the parts that caused her the most anguish and focus on what could eventually be made entertaining. I mean, it sounds like after spending six years, you definitely really got to know her. When your book came out, a lot of the conversation about it was how Shirley Jackson was a writer who had disappeared from the mainstream conversation and is now being rightfully rescued. And I think you see a lot more conversation about her writing now, and maybe we can attribute it to your biography. But for instance, The Haunting of Hill House was adapted into a Netflix TV series last fall. And this year we have um, we have Always Lived in the Castle as being made into a movie. How do you think Jackson is making a comeback? Well, yeah, a lot of her work had fallen out of print at the time that I started working on the book. It's very exciting that 
um, Penguin Classics chose to bring back some of the novels that were out of print. At this point, almost everything is in print of hers. I say almost because there is this book about baby rearing that um, she was a little bit ashamed of herself. It's not um, just hers. It's a, an anthology that includes some original pieces by her as well as um, other humorists. And, you know, I kind of wish somebody would, would bring that one back. So if any publishers are listening, it's called Special Delivery. And I, I think it's it's funny. Um, but anyway, I think, you know, for many years, Jackson was considered kind of a writer's writer. I mean, she was well known among people, you know, not just people who write in her genre, like Stephen King, for instance, um, is a huge admirer of Jackson and The Haunting of Hill House in particular and has written a lot about that book. Other writers like Jonathan Lethem, for instance, who you wouldn't think of as a genre writer in any way. Of course, Jackson wasn't really a genre writer either, and we can get into that. Uh, But, you know, not a writer in the style of Shirley Jackson, who nonetheless admired her work and tried to promote it in any way he could. But, you know, to get back to your actual question about um, why she might be relevant now, you know, I think... The way she wrote about her family life and her very kind of realistic, not sentimentalized take on motherhood is something that still feels very fresh, especially I think it's a good antidote to um, today's, you know, trend towards helicopter parenting. You know, the 1950s style was really the opposite of helicopter. She basically, you know, threw them out the back door and told them to stay out there and play until she called them for dinner. And the humor that she has about her own life is consoling, I think, to today's parent. And as far as, you know, as far as the literary works, you know, I think a classic ghost story like The Haunting of Hell House doesn't ever go out of style. I've read that book, I don't even know, maybe 10 times and continue to see new things in it. And, you know, we have always lived in the castle. It's in many ways a more complicated book about these two women, the sisters at the center of that novel, and their relationship to each other as well as their relationship to the outside world. It's very enigmatic. There's a lot there for readers to discover. Definitely. And I think your comment about the helicopter parents, it would be so interesting if we could hear what Jackson thought about helicopter parents now. (laughs) I imagine she would think they should all get in their own helicopters and fly themselves away. (laughs) (laughs) For readers who might not be familiar, uh, her parenting memoirs are called Raising Demons and Life Among the Savages. So certainly no helicopter parenting there. (laughs) Indeed. Um, In fact, I once showed up at the uh, public library with a copy of Raising Demons to check out, and I had my two small children in tow at the time. And the clerk looked at me and looked at the book and looked at them, and he said, is it a how-to manual? (laughs) I love it. Shirley Jackson would be proud. And um, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, this sort of tension about what genre that Shirley Jackson wrote in, because that's something that's often puzzled critics. You know, she's got these humorous, if occasionally dark, parenting memoirs. um, And then she's got her ghost stories, Haunting of Hill House, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. And in your biography, you argue that these two, what some would say, wildly different genres, um, are actually very interconnected. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, she's the author of six completed novels. There is another one that 
uh, wasn't finished at the time for death and has been published in an incomplete version. And they really are all in different genres. You know, there's a suburban social novel and there's a coming of age novel and there's a novel about um, a woman with multiple personality disorder. Um, you know, so she's all over the map. And it was a struggle for critics of her time to figure out how to appreciate her. You know, not not always a successful struggle. For one thing, I think it's her style that unites all of her work. Um, it's just crystal clear, totally pared down to the essence of um, whatever she's trying to express, whether it's humor or whether it's suspense. That style works so well. And it's something that I found really interesting to follow in her drafts, um, the way she just would work over and over her sentences until they said, you know, the maximum possible in the minimum amount of space. It's something, you know, I think that all writers can learn from. You know, you see that especially in We Have Always Lived in the Castle, which is a novel that went through many, many drafts, even more than she usually did, and took several different forms before she settled on what would finally be the right one. And in the drafts, there's a lot of stuff that is unexplained in the final version of the novel that did have explanations in the drafts. And Jackson chose to cut it all out. I find that so fascinating. You know, she she just, when, when there was a choice to be made, she opted for the more enigmatic version. So there's the style that links all of her writing, regardless of the genre. But I think there's also a certain sensibility. Even when she's writing about the most macabre stuff, she always has a very light touch. There's always something humorous in the scenes to be found there. Um, and the same thing is true with her parenting memoirs. She, just, she never takes herself too seriously. Um, and that, too, could be what caused some of the critics to devalue her work, you know, to take that at face value. But obviously, I think that's a big mistake. Right. I completely agree. And I think that one of my favorite stories about Shirley Jackson is the one that she wrote in The Third Baby's The Easiest when mm. she talked about how she went to the hospital to deliver the third of her four children and the admitting clerk asked for her occupation and she replied, writer. And then the clerk said, I'll just put down housewife. And you've said that that's the key to understanding Shirley Jackson. Why do you think that is? Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of my favorite stories, too. And it's actually the story that made me want to write her biography. Because that single moment, I felt like encapsulated just about everything we needed to know about what it was like to be Shirley Jackson. You know, what it was like to be. So if it was her third baby, then that was 1948. Um, Her third baby was published, by the way, just after she published The Lottery. So, you know, when she said she was a writer, she had just published the most sensational story that The New Yorker had ever published, which had generated more mail than that magazine had ever received before for a work of fiction. And yet there she is at the hospital, you know, having to prove her credentials, um, you know, to show her bona fides. And the clerk doesn't basically doesn't even believe her. That one little moment I felt said so much about what it was like to be a professional woman in America at that time, you know, just after World War II, and there was so much pressure on American women and just how hard it must have been for Shirley Jackson or a woman like her with an artistic drive, a creative temperament, to try to make a space for herself in that world. So 
This is our Halloween episode, Ruth. We've talked about Shirley Jackson, the writer, and we've talked about Shirley Jackson, the mother. So let's talk about Shirley Jackson, the witch. Mm. Uh, her interests uh, in the occult started as a young adult. She learned how to read tarot cards, and she spread rumors of her own ability to use witchcraft. My favorite is uh, the legend she sort of let get around that she broke the publisher Alfred Knopf's leg because he and her husband were having a disagreement. And her line about that was she had to wait until he was out of state because she wasn't allowed to practice witchcraft across state lines. (laughs) Uh, Can you (laughs) talk a little bit about um, how she brings this interest in magic uh, into writing her fiction and maybe a little bit about what, what this magic meant for her. Sure. Yeah. My own personal favorite of those stories is how she claimed, um, you know, she and her husband were both huge baseball fans, uh, fans of the Brooklyn Dodgers back when they existed as a team. And she used to say that she would, uh, when the Dodgers and the Yankees were in the World Series, she threatened to turn up at Dodger Stadium with all kinds of amulets and things to try to um, charm them and ward off the, the power of the Yankees. Um, So, you know, as that story shows and the one you told about um, Alfred Knopf, you know, she often kind of gave her witchcraft sort of a humorous spin. It's not entirely clear to me how seriously she took it herself. I mean, certainly she did read tarot cards for people um, and she studied, you know, the history of witchcraft. She had a lot of um, books about the occult dating from, you know, centuries back so that was a, an intellectual interest of hers. And my sense is that um, for her, witchcraft meant what it so often means to women. It's a source of power for women who have no other way of channeling it. And I think that's precisely what makes um, women's use of witchcraft you know, feel so dangerous to men, is that you know, it's a way that women, in fact, might get power. As Katie and Taylor mentioned at the top of the show, Spoiler Alert is our online book club hosted on Facebook. If you want to join, we've got a link in the show notes. We're at about 950 members, so fingers crossed this podcast episode pushes it over 1K. That'd be pretty exciting. We'll be back to our regularly scheduled program next week. But until then, take care, stay sharp, and dress up for Halloween. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.